Hello and welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable podcast. In this program, New Jersey's Energy Future Offshore Wind. This is the fifth in a five-event series on the future of energy in New Jersey. The wind is blowing in a new direction in New Jersey, a sign the state is getting serious about developing a robust offshore wind industry. The Murphy administration's established the nation's most aggressive targets for promoting offshore wind. More importantly, it's backed those goals with a series of significant steps to deliver on the commitment. In this program, we'll hear about what's happening with offshore wind, why it's so critical to the state's efforts to combat climate change, and what it means for utility customers. We'll hear opening keynote remarks from Joseph Fiordaliso, the president of the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities, followed by a panel discussion with the following panelists, Thomas Brostrom, president of North America for Orsted North America, Clark Bruno, lead partner for Transmission for Anbaric, Liz Burdock, Executive Director of the Business Network for Offshore Wind, and Josh Kohut, Associate Professor for the Center of Ocean Observing Leadership in the Department of Marine and Coastal Sciences at the School of Environmental and Biological Sciences in Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Moderating the panel will be Tom Johnson, Energy Reporter for NJ Spotlight. Right now, let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, will introduce the program. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Oh, there we go. My wife's a middle school principal, and so I've learned that skill. Uh, Welcome, Um, and thank you very much for being here for what is our fifth in a series on uh, New Jersey's energy future. This is our our biggest endeavor yet on a single topic, and over the course of the year, uh, we had um, a multitude of events, several of them here, and I see a lot of familiar faces, and, and uh, you know, obviously you've, uh, you're coming back, so pretty confident that you've, you've learned a bit from these events um, and, and really appreciate uh, you know, your attendance and your interest. I want to call out a couple of familiar faces who are here. Uh, Governor Florio has joined us today. I see him somewhere. There he is. Thank you. And I also want to point out uh, one of our board members is here, uh, Jane O'Connor, somewhere. There she is. Thank you. Now, the good news is you get to have a full menu of these uh, energy events. The bad news is, uh, if you've been here before, you get to hear my spiel again about how uh, important um, we feel that these events are to our mission at NJ Spotlight and, and bringing you all together. The live journalism, we think, is... Uh, almost as important as the printed journalism that we do and getting you all in the room together and and discussing these things. Uh, We live in an online world and I think it's nice to see people face to face and have these conversations. So um, thank you for that. Also, uh, you get to hear a little self, shameless self-promotion again about NJ Spotlight. Uh, We, uh, and especially now, we are in the middle of a fundraising campaign um, we can't do this. We're a nonprofit. We can't do this without support of our readers and our donors. Um, the beauty of this current fundraising uh, campaign, which started November 1st, is we were part of a match, a national match called the News Match. 150 nonprofit sites across the country, um, where uh, the Knight Foundation, Gates Foundation, and I think MacArthur is part of this, uh, are all um, matching our fundraising 
uh, up to $1,000 gifts will be matched, and up to, in our case, it will be amount to 30, maybe $35,000. So if you want to give to Spotlight, this is your opportunity, and I will be over there with my computer open, and feel free to come visit me. Um, but it's you know very important to us to have that support, not just uh, monetarily, but also your readership and your loyalty, and, and we thank you for that in advance. We also couldn't do these uh, events without sponsors, um, and uh, we have several for this event, and I'd like to introduce Steve Shallot, our business director, to tell you a little bit more about them. Thank you, John. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, as John said, since we've got familiar faces here, you've heard this spiel before, but it's a little different today in that uh, we have a unique set of sponsors um, um, that I'd like to call out in a couple of ways. Um, we express our uh, sincere thanks for their help in making today's event possible. Um, beginning with Orsted, uh, Orsted is the global leader in offshore wind and has built nearly a third of the total offshore wind capacity in the world. I believe that's 24 offshore wind projects to date, which is more than any other company. And in breaking news this week, many of us have heard that as of the 7th of November, Orsted has completed pending approval, the acquisition of a 100% equity, equity interest in deep water wind. Um, Orsted holds a lease approximately 10 miles off the coast of Atlantic City where it plans to develop its utility scale ocean wind project. The ocean wind project can accommodate up to 3,500 megawatts and deliver a significant economic boost and create jobs while providing a renewable energy source to support New Jersey's need for a diversified energy portfolio. And we'd also like to thank Enbaric, uh, with a focus on transmission, specifically in the offshore wind industry and in distributed energy. Enbaric creates new entities that transform old energy systems into more effective, resilient ones, emphasizing clean energy. Enbaric helped spearhead the development of the 660 megawatt Neptune and 660 megawatt Hudson projects, delivering on time and on budget completion of these underground and underwater electricity transmission lines. Ambaric Development Partners was formed in 2017 as a partnership between Ambaric and Ontario Teachers Pensions Plan, which is Canada's largest single profession uh, pension plan. Our sincere thanks also to EDF Renewables North America, which is a market-leading independent power producer and service provider with over 30 years of expertise in renewable energy. EDF Renewables has a significant portfolio of offshore wind projects in development throughout Europe, totaling almost two gigawatts, and is presently seeking regulatory approval for the Nautilus project in Atlantic City. If approved, Nautilus would be New Jersey's first offshore wind project, and only the second on the East Coast, giving the state a head start in this growingly competitive market. And finally, we'd like to thank Deepwater Wind, who prior to being acquired by Orsta this week, graciously joined as a sponsor of today's Offshore Wind event. So thanks again to our sponsors for making today's event possible. Um, and lastly, I'd just like to call out that we have a special resource on, on site today. The uh, kiosk set over here on the table is um, uh, the Mid-Atlantic Ocean Data Portal which is a resource for regional ocean planning. And um, basically the, the upshot is that it will help determine where offshore wind projects should be located. So I encourage you to, uh, to stop by and see their, their live data 
um, uh, demonstrations on the table to my right. And uh, with that, I'd like to put John Mooney back on for a moment, and thank you again for being here. Thanks, Steve. Um, we are, uh, before we just get going, a couple um, housekeeping things. For those, um, there is Wi-Fi here that we hear works sometimes. Um, and it's, uh, it's the AT&T on your, uh, in terms of the server, and then the passcode. You have to go into the promotional, it, it takes you to the hotels, and there's a promotional code that you click, and it's 2018 Hilton 130, all one word, uh, is the passcode. And what's an event without a hashtag, of course, these days? And that is Offshore Wind NJ, also one word. Um, and also, we like to uh, have some interactivity to these events if you haven't been here before. And the way we do that is if you have a question or something you want to bring up with the panelists as they speak, there's index cards on your tables. Uh, write it down, wave it, and one of us, Steve or I, will be walking around. We'll grab it from you, and we'll get it up to the moderator. And, and we don't get to all of them by any means, but we try to you know, include as much as we can. There's also on your table surveys about this event, and we appreciate your feedback uh, very much. So if you could fill those out uh, before you leave, either leave them on the table or there's a box up at the front. Um, and last but not least, we will also uh, be posting um, the event and, and a lot of the background, including podcasts of the discussion on an event page on NJ Spotlight. Uh, keep an eye out on that. That will happen probably in the next week or so. Um, so that, that is a way to keep the, the conversation going and sharing it with others as well. So I'd like to introduce our uh, keynote speaker making our opening remarks. Um, it is Joseph Fierdeliso, uh, president of the BPU. Um, he was born and raised, I didn't know this, born and raised in the Ironbound section of Newark. Uh, has served on the as a commissioner on the BPU for, since 2005 when he was nominated by Governor Richard Cody and confirmed by the Senate. Uh, Renominated again by Governor Christie in 2011 and 2013. And then in January of 2018, this year, he was appointed by Governor Phil Murphy to serve as president of the NJBPU. In addition to those duties, he serves on the National Association of Regulatory Commissioners, committees on critical infrastructure, and on energy resources and the environment. We are really honored and pleased to have him speaking uh, to our event today. So without further ado, President Fierdeliso. Uh, thank you, John. Did I turn that on right? Wow. I still don't know how to do hashtags, so... I... Okay. Good morning. Uh, I see a lot of familiar faces here, and uh, either you're groupies or... Um... But before I, I really give my remarks, I, I do want to mention, and John was very gracious in introducing him, but I, I would just like to say a few words about Governor Florio, who, when he was in the United States Congress, was in the forefront of environmental issues, whether we were talking about brownfields or whatever, anything involving our environment then Congressman Florio was there. And an awful lot of what we see here in New Jersey today is because of his work and his efforts. 
So, Governor, thank you. And thank you, John, and thank you, New Jersey Spotlight. Uh, Tom Johnson asked me to say something that would upstage the governor. And um, I said, you must be nuts. <laughs> he, he delivers the scoops, Tom. <laughs> New Jersey is positioned so well insofar as offshore wind is concerned. New Jersey is more than open for business when it comes to offshore wind. We are in a situation and in a position to be a leader not only in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states, but nationally and internationally. As you know, the governor has set a goal for New Jersey of 100% clean energy by 2050. 100% clean energy by 2050. That's a pretty ambitious goal. But one that is achievable. We just went out for our first solicitation of 1,100 megawatts of offshore wind. And we expect those applications in and complete it by December 28th of this year. And there will be two additional solicitations of 1,200 in 2020 and in 2022. So we're not fooling around. And I'm sitting here and I'm watching on the screens names of companies that want to be involved in our offshore wind program. We're excited for the enthusiasm that so many people and companies have regarding our projects. But offshore wind is only a part of it. We've hired a consultant to help us along. We are in a position where we're looking to expand and renew our energy master plan where we're going to set up a roadmap of how we get to 100% clean energy by 2050. And that energy master plan will be completed by June of 2019. You know, an awful lot of people ask me a question, you know, the Board of Public Utilities is a regulatory body. We tell the public services and the JCPNLs and everybody else that we regulate pretty much what to do. I think sometimes they tell us what to do, but. <laughs> so how do you get involved in clean energy? Well, as most of you probably are aware, the legislature back in 1999 designated the Board of Public Utilities as the Clean Energy Office for the state of New Jersey. So all of these initiatives that you see being proposed by the governor come through the Board of Public Utilities. And we are in a position where we are hiring, and I know that's 
contrary to government in general, but where you're actually hiring people. Smart, young people who have bought into the vision that we have to have a prudent and strategic plan to combat climate change. I don't know if any of you read the United Nations report that came out a few weeks ago. We were all working under the assumption that by the end of the century certain things would happen. We're now being told, oh no, no. Not by the end of the century, in 20 years. Well, 20 years is right around the corner. And I don't know about you, and if you do, I think we're all open to hearing it. I don't know of any other piece of real estate we can live on. As far as I know, this is it. And if we totally screw this up, we're not only screwing it up for ourselves, but more importantly, we're screwing it up for those young people we care about. Whether they're our children, or our grandchildren, nieces, nephews, that's who we're scoring it up for. So I know you probably feel the way I do, that we have a moral obligation to do everything we can to mitigate the effects of climate change. Offshore wind is one of those vehicles, but not the only vehicle. And when you read our energy master plan in June of 2019, you will see a complete roadmap. You will see, really, a jigsaw puzzle of a variety of different clean energy options and programs that we have that are going to get us to that goal. You might have read about transition, transitioning our SREC program for our solar industry. We're in the process of doing that now. Microgrids. Energy storage. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's coming through the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities. It's an awesome amount of work, and it's an awesome responsibility. We've just initiated a community solar pilot program. Programs that will give low and moderate income residents an opportunity to be a part of our efforts to mitigate the effects of climate change. If I can afford to put solar on my rooftop, everybody should have the opportunity to at least participate in solar. 
or whatever other kind of clean energy we're talking about. We like to call it, and the governor calls it, environmental justice. Because I submit to you, and I know I'm probably talking to the choir here, that it's going to take all of us. We don't have all the answers. We have stakeholder meetings constantly. We've had a seven just for our energy master plan. We're doing rules for the funding mechanism for offshore wind. Stakeholder meetings have been conducted. We're reviewing those comments from people who are involved in offshore wind. Because we're the first to admit we don't have all the answers. We need you. We needed a collaborative effort by everybody if we're going to mitigate the effects of climate change. And we need people like you. And I wish all of you in the industry make a gazillion dollars because that means we're moving in the right direction to achieve 100% clean energy by 2050. But we also need you to go out and preach. There are still some people who don't buy into climate change or say it costs too much money. Can we afford not to spend the money? That's the question. And we're seeing the cost of renewable energy constantly decreasing. Solar is 50% less expensive today than it was in 2007. 50%. We're seeing the price of wind, offshore wind, going down. See what happened in Massachusetts. And we must also, when we're out there making our pitches, spreading the word, talk about the economic benefits of clean energy. The jobs it creates. The ancillary industries that benefit from it. There are over 7,000 people today employed in the solar industry in the state of New Jersey. And we are approaching our 100,000th solar installation. We are number five in the United States in solar installations. The state of New Jersey. We'd be higher, but we lagged a little behind these past few years. And in addition to that, lagging behind a little bit, places like Florida and Arizona discovered they had sun. <laughs> so they started building solar, which is great. But New Jersey is a leader. And we will continue to lead with the efforts of people like you. So I implore you, Besides making a zillion dollars, which I hope you all do, go out there and preach the word. 
Tell your friends and neighbors. Anytime you have an opportunity, we have to do something here, folks. And if we don't, I don't even want to think about the consequences. And think about all those little folk. That means something to you. Someone said to me the other day, and I don't think it was a compliment as I thought about it, <clears throat> they said, your runway is running, getting shorter. I think that means I'm getting old. But we all know little folks whose runways are very long. And they're the ones who are going to feel the traumatic effects of climate change. And remember, we do. The moral obligation of our time is to mitigate the effects of that climate change. I know I speak for my colleagues on the Board of Public Utilities that we look forward to working with each and every one of you to promote and to achieve the goal, goals that have been set out. We will have 3,500 megawatts of offshore wind by 2030 in the state of New Jersey. And with your help, we will do it right. So I hope the rest of your session here today is a profitable one. And let's go out there and let the world know that here in New Jersey, we're not fooling around. We're open for business for clean energy until we achieve our goal. Thank you. Okay. A question or two. Sure. Um, do we have a mic that we can? I have. Oh, okay. I, uh, I, I only I only answer questions that I know the answer to. Does anybody have a question they'd like to ask to keep you present? I do. Oh. You asked us to preach about the cost and how it's getting lower. What source? can we go to that will give us all those facts so that we're Well, I'm sure the industry has those numbers. There are numbers coming out all the time from a variety of federal agencies indicating that. We could look at a place like Massachusetts as an example. I think they just, what, was six and a half cents for uh, offshore wind. Um, so these are numbers that can be verified. And uh, it's, uh, well, let's put it this way, it's not fake news. Anyone else have a question? Right Sir. Hi there, Mike Watson from Hillsboro. Um, I had a question regarding, because I'd never heard of this community solar program, and I'm wondering, can that be integrated with affordable housing? Sure. Okay. And who's the contact? Who, sure. How would one the community solar program currently is a pilot program, okay. and it will probably really kick off after the first of the year. And it's a three-year program where we will be monitoring um, the program and make alterations, changes where it becomes necessary to make those changes. And the idea is that at least 40% of it has to be available to low and moderate income 
folks, and many of whom live in multi-dwellings. So Heather is going to give you a card. You call our office and we'll direct you to the exact person to talk to. I think we have time for one more. Uh, so can you, um, can you expand a little bit on the 40% for LMI? Does that mean that, um, like how much will be set aside for specifically low income? At least, I, at least 40%. Well, no, like 40% is for low and moderate income, right? Yes. So then I heard about another 10% that was for low income. So I don't know, is that rolled into the 40%? What I'm concerned about is that um, moderate income families are probably better equipped to go through the application process and do it quickly than, than low income because of the chaos that exists in low income households all the time as a natural consequence of being low income. So, um, so I'm concerned that the whole 40% could be taken over by moderate no, income. No, and that's, and that's why the pilot program is going to be monitored along the way to ensure the fact that everyone who wants to participate has the ability and the chance to do so. All right, I think we're good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Go that way. Go that way and they'll, uh, they'll set you up. Yeah, they'll unhook you. Could the panelists join us? You know who you are. We hope. <laughs> Take them anywhere you, anywhere you wish. Yeah, and there's some seats for those who, yeah, I think everyone's, there's some seats up here if you can't find one. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Tom Johnson. Uh, has been with Spotlight from the beginning, one of our co-founders. Uh, before that, 20-some uh, years at, at the Star Ledger with me and, and uh, knows as much about energy policy and environmental policy as anybody um, in the state and, and even maybe in this room. Um, and is a wonderful moderator and uh, will lead this discussion. So Tom, are you mic'd up? Ready to go? Great. I introduce Tom Johnson. <clears throat> Thanks, John. Thanks, President Fiordaliso. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, we've got a great panel, and the timing is just uh, superb. Uh, so uh, first off, I'll give short introductions to everybody. We're going to start off with um, Tom. Borstrom, president of North America, Orsted North America. And they've been uh, amazing. They just, as Steve mentioned, uh, they managed to finalize a deal to acquire uh, deep water wind uh, just a month after uh, they uh, announced the deal. So hopefully they'll move through the uh, process of offshore wind development this quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, th thank you, and uh, I'm not sure about that, but we'll do our best for sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for, for having me. So, as you said, my name is Thomas Brostrom. Um, I'm heading up uh, Austin in North America. 
just wanted to start out giving a little bit of background about our company and uh, when I listened to the president uh, um, talking about what New Jersey is doing to also be at the forefront of climate change, I'll just go 10 years back to a point where I actually started in, in this company um, at that point called Danish Oil and Natural Gas, a company that was one of the most polluting companies in Europe, heavily relying on extracting oil and gas from the North Sea and uh, burning uh, coal, uh, coal from, our fire, from our power plants. Now, 10 years in, we have completely transformed our business uh, very, very rapidly. We've become the, the global leader in, in offshore wind. We are, over the next uh, four years, completely out of uh, fossil fuels and will be a 100% clean energy. And uh, we've done that as a sizable company. Um, we are a $25 billion company, uh, 7,000 people, uh, basically, also uh, based around the globe. So this can be done, but then I will just say that uh, we are uh, extremely excited about the developments in New Jersey, uh, in the wider uh, eastern seaboard in the US when it comes to renewables and offshore wind. When I moved over here uh, three and a half years ago, it was a, at a point in time where I think offshore wind had a very hard time. Um, just uh, came off the heels of Cape Wind not going ahead. And look at where we are today, uh, you know, due to leadership of uh, states like New Jersey, also other states, uh, New York, Massachusetts, uh, Maryland, the list is long. We basically can see more than 10,000 megawatts that will be uh, built over the next essentially 10 years. And that's very, very big. Um, we have now said that uh, we definitely believe in this market. We have just uh, made two acquisitions over the last essentially couple of months. We spent more than a half billion dollars acquiring um, LCE, Lincoln Clean Energy, based out of Chicago. That's onshore wind. And then um, um, yesterday, or was it the day before? I'm completely <laughs> lost. Uh, we basically uh, closed the transaction of deep water wind. And that also tells um, us that uh, we definitely think the time is right. The last thing I just want to say is that I think the US and New Jersey has hit the timing absolutely perfect. Costs have come down over the last three, four years by more than 60%. Uh, and we're also seeing right now that the supply chain is really believing in the market. So they are over here all the time looking for opportunities to invest. And uh, with that, I'll just say that we are thrilled to be in, in New Jersey. We're thrilled to be in Atlantic City and we are ramping up our efforts. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, next up is uh, Liz Perler. She's uh, president and CEO, CEO of uh, Business Network for Offshore Wind and she knows a lot, and then we'll talk about the supply chain and the jobs that can come from offshore wind. Liz? Great, is it, is it okay if I show a few slides? Perfect, is it okay if I, Tom, can I take yeah. your space for just one second? Thanks. So, hi everyone, good morning. It's nice to see you all here. What a crowd that's interested in offshore wind. This is fabulous. So my name is Liz Burdock. I am the CEO and president of the Business Network for Offshore Wind. Uh, we are a national nonprofit focused on developing the U.S. offshore wind uh, market and its supply chain. We do have an office here in New Jersey with staff. Uh, so we're very focused on uh, moving New Jersey forward and great to be here. I want to give you this overview of the, I, I should also say, we solely focus on offshore wind. We don't do any other clean energy technologies. So 
I like to say that we follow the market 24 7, 365. So we believe that we have become a market expert and also an expert on supply chain development here in the United States. So from that position, uh, I wanted to give you a bit of an overview of what's happening in, in the US uh, on offshore wind so we can just put things in context. Uh, we've got 13 wind energy areas leased off of our coast, um, mostly on the, all on the East Coast right now, but there are four areas that are going to be leased in California. Uh, you can see the states in my little infographic that are shaded gray that have offshore wind activity. Um, that 13 wind energy areas represent 17 gigawatts or 17,000 megawatts of offshore wind. And as Thomas said, we expected at least 10,000 of those megawatts to be developed by 2030. Uh, President uh, Fido Lariso said that the price is coming down. That's absolutely true. In Maryland, in May of 2017, we had a project that went forward, uh, and the price point was 13 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, one year later, we had Massachusetts uh, announce the winner of their procurement, and we had it at 6.5 cents. So you can see that's pretty much, my math is right, a 50% drop. Um, so can I just, I don't know how to flip these up. So this is a quick project timeline of all the projects that are currently underdeveloped in the US right now. Um, and that represents 1.8 gigawatts of offshore wind, 1,800 megawatts. Can we flip it up? Now this is my simple math, because I am not a mathematician at all. But NREL estimates that for every one megawatt of offshore wind power, that creates 20 jobs, 20.7 jobs. So if I did the math right, that's 37,260 jobs that we are expecting to be created just from the projects that we have leased uh, or in the pipeline right now. That does not include New Jersey with their 1,100 megawatt solicitation, nor does it include New York, which just came out yesterday with their 800 megawatt solicitation. So that is, the, the job numbers that we're looking at. If we can take the next screen up. These, this, again, is just our eastern seaboard. We're th and if we get to that 10,000 megawatts of offshore wind, we're talking 96,000 jobs. Um, so I kept these uh, slides brief. But essentially, you have your developers like Thomas, and you have your tier one suppliers um, that get hired. And then they hire secondary suppliers. And then they hire tertiary suppliers. So when I was young, there was this commercial that said, if you tell one person, and they tell two people, and then they, those two people tell four people, and then four people tell eight people, and it just goes on and on and on. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a mushroom industry here. Um, and it's, I, if you want to move the next slide up. So I think it's really important that we understand that there's a, this big pie, and there's a lot to go around. And we, as states, can cooperate, or states can cooperate, and we, as industry, can cooperate. We call it something called coopetition. You might be competing at, at one point, but later, the pie is so big that you come in, and then you start, there's so much work to go around, you start cooperating with your competition. So that we've seen that in Europe, and we expect to see that here in the United States. And then finally, New Jersey, can we just pull this up? You all are, yes, uh, President DeFloriso was correct. Things were quite quiet here in the state for a little bit of time, but boy, have you made up for that. You're really, really leading under the uh, leadership of Governor Murphy when he announced the 3,500 megawatt commitment to offshore wind and then came out with the 1,100 megawatt solicitation and then put forward an, a transparent process for the remaining 
2400, it really did send a clear message to industry that New Jersey was serious, it had a transparent process, it had a time frame, and that people needed to come and invest. So what I think you will be seeing is a, an enormous amount of job growth and investment in the state. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Um, now, uh, I just want to mention that uh, those slides will be posted on our website over the weekend uh, uh, for those in your audience who want to see them. Uh, next up is Doug Copeland. He's regional project man manager for EDF Renewables and also the Nautilus project, which is uh, used to be called Fisherman's Energy, and it's the furthest along of the projects, and now before the BPU. Doug? Thank you, and good morning. Again, my name is Doug Copeland. I'm with EDF Renewables. Um, I've been in the renewables energy industry for about 13 and a half years. It's a bit of a second <laughs> career for me, and I've seen a lot of things happen in New Jersey, and uh, we're really excited for what's going on in the state here. And um, EDF actually has uh, had employees in New Jersey for a long time. I've got some colleagues who are here in the audience, and we've done a, a bunch of solar projects. And um, as a company, we've been around for about 30 years. We're one of only two companies that's taken down our first wind projects and repowered them. So you take down 15 or 20 old turbines and put one up in its place. Um, we're really proud of that track record. We employ a little over 1,000 people here in North America. We've built about uh, 10 gigawatts and own about 5 gigawatts. And uh, across the pond, we've got uh, about 400 and something megawatts worth of offshore projects that are operating with another 2 gigawatts that start construction next year off the coast of Scotland and then uh, some projects off the coast of France. And so for us, when we look at North America and we look at, at renewables and we look at offshore wind especially, um, what we're looking for is kind of a stepping stone, and we're really pleased to be able to work with Fisherman's Energy to advance the Nautilus project. Um, it's gone through a, a couple iterations, and I, I, I guess I've said this publicly before so I can make the joke again, but I, I tell those guys they've been through four governors. They were with Corzine, they were with Christie, then they were with the second version of Christie, who stopped supporting offshore wind, and now they're with Governor Murphy, who's a big fan of offshore wind. And I think that that's, that's really important for us because we came in and we saw Governor Murphy's leadership and we said, okay, this is a way for a project to get built now. We can start construction next year. It's a way to really leverage all the skills that are here in New Jersey, but to really increase the, the learning opportunities uh, and construction, especially for organized labor, especially for the ports here in the state. Because to go from zero to 3,500 is a big step. And so to be able to take a, a stepping stone along the way is important, we think, for New Jersey. And it's also important for us as a company. We have a track record of doing some smaller projects before we've done bigger ones. It's a great way to kind of just really see what the infrastructure is like. And so, uh, again, excited to bring this project forward, to be able to, to have it be here in New Jersey. And uh, we also think it's just great for Atlantic City as well. And really appreciate your time today. Thanks. Thank you, Doug. Uh, next up is uh, Josh Cohart, he's Associate Professor for the Center of Ocean Observing Leadership at the uh, Rutgers University Marine and Coastal Sciences. Josh. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation to be here this morning. Uh, so, as said, my name is Josh Cohart. I'm a faculty member at Rutgers. I've been working in the field of ocean observing, so my background is, is in oceanography, and met-ocean is uh, the term that we call it. And, um, I'm here to provide some comments on, on what resources the state of New Jersey has in terms of environmental monitoring and support for the developing offshore wind. 
Um, many of you may know or may not know, but the ocean off New Jersey is the most variable from summer to winter of anywhere on the planet. So seeing temperatures in the surface ocean that can go from, uh, what, like 75, 80 degrees in the summer can be as cold as 38, 35 degrees in the winter. And that's very unusual, right? And that has a big impact on the wind resource that's available to the developing offshore wind uh, industry community. Um, it goes from summertime sea breezes, uh, which many of you may have experienced. I grew up on the uh, Jersey Shore and I relied on those sea breezes to uh, enjoy the, the Barnegat Bay area and the ocean just offshore. Uh, it also has impacts on storms, uh, whether it's a Sandy that intensifies and Irene that may de-intensify and, and lead to more rainfall on shore. That's all coupled to our ocean environment. Uh, in addition to that, there's a lot of New Jersey's economies that are dependent on the ocean, uh, whether it's the natural resources that it provides or other stakeholder groups like shipping, fishing. And there's a great opportunity here in New Jersey in that we have a tremendous amount of information that can feed the planning process for offshore wind and those other stakeholder communities. Uh, there's a tremendous resource right off our coast. It's been developed for the last 25 years, and it's these various regional partnerships that are providing real-time and products based on information from the ocean. We have robots offshore right now that are flying and patrolling the waters for water quality and other reasons. We have satellites that are watching the ocean from space. We have radars on the coast that are doing important work for life-saving and search and rescue for the Coast Guard. So New Jersey is very well placed. There's, on the slide there, there's a couple examples of two partnerships that I just want to raise. One called Maracuz, because in our community, apparently we have to have awful acronyms. Uh, but Maracuz is the mid, it's a mid-Atlantic regional observing system. And it's a collection of about 20 institutions, Rutgers is the lead, uh, that are participating in ocean observing and met ocean observing throughout the region. One of the important things that this provides is with New Jersey BPU support, we have been running an atmospheric model that takes that ocean information, incorporates the tight links between the ocean and the atmosphere to provide a better forecast of wind offshore. And that forecast of wind offshore has been run since 2011. It's run every morning. It was run this morning. And we're continuing to build that database so that we can have a better understanding of what our wind resource is uh, that's available to the industry. That data is all publicly available, and we're eager to work with the industry and the state uh, in providing that information. And as was mentioned earlier, I'll just say briefly the plug for my friends over there at the portal. Uh, it's a very important aspect. The other group that's listed there is MARCO. It's a governor's alliance between five states in our region, and they have built an ocean portal that takes some of that real-time information, other economic information, layers it together so that all those shared uses can be considered in the development of offshore wind. Thank you, Josh. Okay, uh, Clark Bruno is uh, CEO of uh, Lead Partner for Transmission on Annabarrett. Uh, President Fia Luiso didn't mention transmission, and uh, that's a pretty hot topic, so I, maybe you could uh, illuminate us, Clark, about what the issues are. I would be happy to. I'm going to stand up here because I have a few slides. Um, 
there's one guy that usually doesn't belong in the room, and that guy is me. Right? <laughs> we have the, the wind developers. We have Tomas, Liz, and, and uh, I'm sorry, Doug. These beautiful, gigantic structures on the ocean, the blades majestically spinning with the breeze. And then we have the wisdom and expertise of science and all the, the knowledge that robots are getting at their fingertips about what happens offshore wind. And then you got the boring cable guy, all right? <laughs> Infrastructure, what am I doing here? Infrastructure, I submit to you, is key for the growth of the offshore wind industry here in New Jersey. As a company, we think that Governor Murphy's goals are extraordinary. He's gotten the attention of the entire industry worldwide with 3,500 megawatts. We embrace this goal. We think it's critical. I'm going to talk about how we get there. How we get there. Work remains to be done, I submit. What's that mean? Competition. We live in a democracy. We live in a capitalist democracy, and our standard of living and the benefits that we enjoy, unequally it must be said, but the benefits that we enjoy are a fruit of both democracy and capitalism. And competition is missing potentially from this industry for a couple of reasons that I'm going to try to go through with you this morning. In the first procurement, there may be a little competition between two or three wind developers. But this procurement treats transmission infrastructure as just another part of wind development, rather than the strategic asset that it is. Because transmission is treated part of wind development, rather than separated. Its unique value of providing access to the grid and access to the market is overlooked. And what happens, because we're not focused on getting access to the grid, I am worried, and it's market, I'm worried that there's a threat and potentially the likelihood that competition will be stifled in this industry and we need competition in every industry to grow. Transmission simply is the only path to market. And when that path is foreclosed, I'm sorry, when that path is open, there's robust competition which benefits everyone. But when that path is closed or narrowed, competition is constrained and perhaps even eliminated. Let's look at what's going on in New Jersey today. As a practical matter, there are relatively few number of substation, substations that can handle a large amount of offshore wind. And that number plunges when you look at the realities. Siting a transmission line, permitting it across beaches and barrier islands, and making sure it's able to be constructed, and PS, securing community support for the entire project. These robust substations that can fit all those criteria are scarce resources. They're valuable assets in this market. And it's potentially open to first mover <clears throat> complications. If a first mover builds a transmission line to shore, others are not able to build a transmission line in that same route they can't access those valuable markets, I'm sorry, those valuable substations. You lose those assets, and they can perhaps not be used again. 
This is why generators who aren't yet in this market prefer transmission, prefer a shared approach so every generator can get access to those valuable interconnection points. And by making a planned transmission system open and available to all generators, you get the competition that allows the industry to grow, you get the maximum use of scarce resources, and you protect the environment because you have fewer lines to shore. So, am I just talking? This is just kind of a little policy chit-chat. This actually is the way the world works in offshore industry, and it's the way the world works here in the onshore grid. The United States for many years has, the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, has preferred the separation of generation and transmission. Overseas, the offshore wind markets in the most successful locations, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Denmark, have each created a, a open access transmission system to allow for robust competition, rapid growth, and low prices. If I can just have one slide up here. This is what happened in Germany. Germany went from under 100 megawatts to over 5,000 in less than a decade with an open access transmission system. The Netherlands, Belgium, and Denmark have achieved similar results. And what is eye-popping is that in the Netherlands and Germany, you have gotten offshore transmission, offshore wind with prices that compete without subsidies with onshore. So transmission yields the competition that creates low, low prices. That is remarkable. We can get there here in New Jersey. We can get there now when you separate transmission from generation, create competition, and create the market that can get us to 3,500 megawatts and get us well beyond those 3,500 megawatts. Thank you for your attention. I thank NJ Spotlight for inviting me to this event, and I look forward to the discussion now. Uh, thanks, uh, Clark. And on that note, I think we have a basis for a nice discussion. I'm sure Thomas and Doug might want to weigh in on that. You guys want to? Give your perspective on transmission. Yeah, <clears throat> as you will. Um, and I like Bruno, but we definitely don't agree on very much. <laughs> um, and as a company who has actually built projects in Europe, I can only say that uh, having a separated approach as Bruno advocates for is not what you want to do for uh, many reasons. Because if you are a developer that has to build both the generation assets, that is the wind farms, but also transmissions. You can obviously optimize the design, the size, and the location. So let's take New Jersey as an example. If the BPU wanted to go out with 3,500 megawatt today, I would say, yes, let's have a conversation about how could you build something smart on the offshore grid side. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about up to 1,100 megawatt, and then over time, you would build more out. And for us as the developer, Basically, we can go out and we can figure out what is the shortest route to connect, what is the cheapest route to connect when you have the wind farm out there. And when it comes to Europe, um, having built wind farms there since 1991, it's absolutely not true 
that Germany is very successful. They have been overtaken by the UK. They had had $4 billion of cost overruns paid by the ratepayers, and they had up to 24 months of, of delay. For that reason, you're seeing countries like Denmark moving away from that system again. So I think there are many reasons why you don't want to do that, and I think also the argument about why are you, what, you want to build something more central, because you create more competition. So you're subsidizing a central solution to, think, to say you create more competition, where you don't allow the developer itself to figure out what is the smartest way to connect into the grid. And just on the environment side, it's the same components, it's the same cables that runs into shore. You're not going to get anything that is much smarter from, from that uh, point. So it won't be the last you know, time we will be discussing this, and I appreciate it, it's, uh, and Barrick's a good, good company, but when it comes to offshore wind, uh, this would be very, very bad for New Jersey to go down that route. So I kind of half agree with both guys, which means they're both going to be sort of annoyed with me. But I think that um, this is, uh, I'm, I'm used to it. This is what I tell my kids. Like, compromise means we're both unhappy, right? So, uh, and, and a little bit happy. But I think that, uh, t t I really agree with Thomas that for the first round, it, it's, it's pretty hard to think about a, a grid for it. Um, and I actually just spoke about transmission a couple weeks ago at the WE Offshore conference. But I think when you think about the growth of offshore wind across New Jersey, um, and, and you, you rope New York in there, and then I, I think you actually do have some opportunities for a regional solution for transmission. The issue is, is who pays for it and when does it get built? Because one of the, the issues that happened to projects in Europe was the transmission line was late. And, and the developer ended up okay, but the ratepayer didn't. And that's really not good for anybody. Uh, well, I guess it's okay for the developer, but it's sure not good for the ratepayer. And, and so when we think about projects is, if there's gonna be an offshore transmission system, and I get asked, when should it come online? I'm gonna tell you, before I drop my first foundation in the water, or maybe at least a year before my first turbines are getting installed. And if it's not, well now we have a problem because I, I then don't have control of my own destiny. And that's really what us developers are, right? We're happy to talk and be part of panels, but we're really greedy at the end of the day because we don't want to have other people mess with our stuff. And, and the idea of a radio line that just comes in right from your project to shore, that's our problem, we deal with it, we go through the kind of the hassles, but it's still just, it's our ball, we control that game. And, and there is something really beautiful about connecting to an offshore transmission system that we just run however many miles off to a, a service platform and, and we go from there. We don't have to worry about the onshore efforts uh, that are involved because those are actually probably the hardest part of some of the permitting that's involved. Um, but what we, what we don't do is get to control any of that. And, and so that's where, where I really struggle is for the first couple of projects I I don't think there's any disagreement between me and Thomas. It's what happens later on where I think there is a, a solution. It's technically, I think, fairly straightforward. I mean, for engineers, I'm not one. I just play one on TV. But I think that, that for, from a science standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. But from the, the political and the economic side, how does it actually get rolled out in a way that protects the ratepayer, builds the, the stability and the protection of the grid backbone, um, but also doesn't make offshore wind more expensive or more risky than it already is. That's the, the nut that I think hasn't been cracked yet. Anybody else one way? Clark, you wanna? Well, I'll, I'll just, um, I'll weigh in. Um, Clark and Thomas can also be annoyed with, with me as well, because I'm, I'm in Doug's camp. Um, I, I believe that this is a conversation that the, our industry must have as, as we move forward and looking at 10,000 megawatts of offshore wind, but right now is, is not, um, is the, our first projects need to get online. And I think it is really important that that happens. Um, 
I think that it is a conversation that needs to be broadened out. I think that the, actually the insurance companies need to come in and they need to weigh in because I think what, I think the, uh, and policymakers need to hear from them because at, at the end of the day, they're underwriting, the, underwriting these projects and it does, it's decoupling the transmission from the developer does make the project more risky. Thomas is absolutely correct. And he's also correct that in Germany, um, what happened was, and Thomas, you can certainly weigh in with a little more detail here, but uh, the developer built the projects and then they had a stranded asset. They could not get the power down to the, they, they built them in the northern part of the country and the, the load was in the southern part and they could not get the power down to the southern part. In fact, they're still struggling with it today. So I think that, again, as we look in the United States to build out this industry, it's an important conversation to have, um, but we're not there yet. Well, that raises uh, the Germany question, raises an issue that I think Tom's, I mean, uh, Clark was alluding to. Uh, the f much of the offshore wind, at least as far as New Jersey is co concerned, is being built off Atlantic City and southern New Jersey. But the load is up in northern New Jersey. I mean, isn't that the same problem that Germany had? that you just alluded to in New Jersey? And how are you gonna get that power from 3,500 megawatts down southern New Jersey to northern New Jersey, New York, and other parts of the grid? Yeah, I, th I think uh, you're right, but the, that should be fixed on land, right? It's on land you have the issue, the onshore grid, where it's a little bit weak, that's onshore. Offshore, you can build it uh, from, from scratch, but it's really when you co connect in, so if I could ask for one thing, then it would be to invest and upgrade the grid onshore, because that's where the bottleneck is. And we see that in the mid-Atlantic, we see that on Long Island, it's certainly not offshore. So that's where the focus needs to be, if you ask me. And then obviously you can transport the electricity up to, to the north as well. So uh, a couple of points. One is, is I'd like to go back to the previous conversation and, and twist things around, agreeing partially with Doug and partially with Liz and even partially with Tomas. Okay? So uh, the first procurement, I think, is probably in each state, Massachusetts, uh, New York, and New Jersey, not the place for, uh, to start talking about a transmission system. Uh, I think timing is critical. The, the, uh, the federal tax credit is driving the timing. You don't want to lose, as a ratepayer, as a developer, as a regulator, you don't want to lose 12% of the project because you didn't get, uh, get steel in the ground by the time that the tax credits are there. So, yes, I take, I take the point of timing. Uh, on, on the other hand, I think the, the points of competition are inescapable that in order to have a robust market, you need lots of active players. Um, and quite simply, the lots of active players are enabled by, as Doug said, a transmission system that takes a state or regional system that allows developers to plug and play, that removes the highest risk, most complex part of the transaction getting to market and allows access to market on an equal basis for everyone. Uh, if I can comment briefly on, on what's going on in Germany, that slide that showed the growth in Germany, I think speaks for itself. There were problems early on, absolutely right. Uh, Tomas's company actually lived through some of those problems. Um, 
but the, the issue is they have been by and large rectified. The Netherlands has taken on this transmission system approach. They've got 1,000 megawatts spinning. They're planning on 3,500, like New Jersey, but by 2023, and another 3,500 by 2028 with a, a, a planned transmission system. So I think the planned transmission system approach is viable and it allows for the growth and the competition that we get here. Looping back to New Jersey, um, obviously there are nukes in the south. Those nukes come up to the north with the 500 megawatt uh, lines. We're not building nukes in Salem. We're building very, very large offshore wind facilities off Atlantic City, uh, probably off Monmouth County once the BOEM lease is, is granted late uh, next year, early 2020. In order to move that many megawatts, there becomes a challenge of how you get all of that there. If we're going to stop at 3,500, you know, we can sort of think about here or there. I think Tomas is right, said it again, that we need to take, oh, but it's your, it's your turn soon. The, the, uh, there needs to be a much more comprehensive approach. If you begin to drop lots and lots of intermittent resources into a relatively small location like New Jersey, the grid does need to be upgraded. You need voltage support and all other kinds of technical grid operation support that allow Tomas and his competitors to get that energy here without threatening the grid. So the solution is a bit of both, if you will. The onshore grid must be upgraded. It is essential for the industry, but the solution is to allow those upgrades to coincide with an offshore grid so that the onshore grid and the offshore grid can work in harmony rather than in cross purposes. Okay, thank you, Thomas. So this, we're, um, there's going to be a podcast, so you can report that Thomas is right. Uh, <laughs> often when you have a disagreement with him. Okay. Um, uh, how much of the, the, uh, one final question on transmission, we'll move on to something else. How much uh, of, of the projects, uh, of the initial projects, uh, profitability is tied up in uh, building the transmission? And would the project be profitable without it? Yeah, I mean, we, we see transmission, obviously, as part of the project, so we don't sort of separate those uh, things. But if you look to what part of the investment is sort of tied to the, um, to the transmission, you're probably talking uh, less than 20% of the total investment that will be uh, from transmission. Obviously, depending on what project you're looking at, what is the, the, the size of it, and uh, also what is the uh, cable route, what's the distance. But uh, ballpark effect is something like that. So it, it's uh, certainly, a, uh, I wouldn't say a not significant part, but you, you got turbines, you got cables, you got foundations, you got the whole installation vessels, and then you got transmission as, as another component. I cannot sort of, you can say that if you look to UK, there's a model where the developer builds the transmission and the generate, uh, generation, and then after that, you're basically divesting the transmission part. And you do that because that's highly uh, effective, because you have de-risked the project. Then you go out, sell the transmissions to infrastructure um, companies or funds, and you do that at a very, very low rate, significantly below the regulated return that you get here. 
So I don't mind competition. I just think uh, before you start talking about competition, the model that you have in the UK allows basically to take out costs because you have investors coming in with very cheap money who are happy with very low returns once you have built the project. Okay, um, getting off transmission, uh, there's a solicitation ongoing and one of the questions uh, being asked by regulatory officials is how should uh, projects be sized in the initial 1100 megawatt um, solicitation? Uh, should it be done in 400 uh, megawatt increments, uh, larger increments? And should one company perhaps do the entire 1100 megawatts? Your thoughts on that, people? Thomas, I guess. I'll start giving my, I'm sure the other have used. I, I think New Jersey has done the right thing in keeping it very open. Come in, as I understand it, anything between three and 400 megawatt and all the way up to eight and 1100 megawatt, then uh, the state can take a look at what do you think uh, they get the most uh, benefit. I think the obvious trade-off is uh, if you go um, very low on the capacity, you don't get the, the big scale benefits that you can have from obviously developing, constructing and operating bigger wind farms. There's a lot of synergies from that. Also, when you go out procure large scale, you get obviously some discounts. Against that, you can argue, do you want to have multiple companies coming out to start to create an industry so you can also uh, compete going forward? And those are the two things I think you need to um, balance. And then I would argue that there's also, as there's a race between developers to win contracts, there's also a race between states to get jobs. And New Jersey obviously very well positioned coming out with the biggest target of 3.5 gigawatts, but also coming out with the first solicitation uh, of 1100 megawatt bigger than Massachusetts, same size as New York, um, but those things matter when the supply chain looks at, looked at where do we want to set up shop. Um, so I think those are sort of the trade-offs you need to consider when you talk about what is the right, right size. No secret that we have been advocating for going bigger because we've seen that's uh, where the industry is going, where we take out cost. But that's also in more mature markets uh, where you have, you know, it's just more players. So there are, there are different trade-offs here. So we, we come, I think, from a sort of a similar perspective, but I, I think that what New Jersey is really going for with the OREC process is both price and value. And I mean, it's one of the reasons we think that the Nautilus project makes sense because it's not going to compete on price, but it's going to provide a huge value. When we think about future projects, I think it's the same opportunity for the state. And I'm going to politely tell well, I really have to be careful what I tell President Fiordaliso because I have an open docket in front of no, him. But he's not here. those numbers are wrong about the six and a half cents. And the 130 something in Maryland is wrong. Those are not dollars for today. Those are not dollars for the future. Those are dollars for a headline, and they have no representation of what actually the developer is going to get paid for that project because they're based upon escalators and they're based upon other things coming in. And it's not to say they're not incredible numbers, but they're not as low as they are. It's, it's sort of like in The Princess Bride when he keeps saying, I don't think that word means what you think it means, you know, because those numbers are, you know, those, those Maryland numbers, that's in 2012, and there's an escalator. That project's not even built, and the value of that PPA has already jumped up pretty significantly. And, and again, I think that for New Jersey, we're going to look for a headline number that's good. I don't think it's going to be Massachusetts. 
because uh, we have a different wind resource, we have a different just kind of infrastructure and things like that. But I think that as the state's thinking about projects, it's got to think about price, but it's got to think about value. And I think the value is in the competition. And I think that if you, if you bet everything on one project uh, and that project has a problem, then you're, you're stuck. And I think that that's where the, the BPU will be wrestling, that you're going to have, maybe I think, what, three or four leases that they're going to have competitors from, and, and they'll make their choice. Um, but I think that that, as, as, as we're thinking about these things, like I said, I think there's, price is a huge thing, but, but competition is a, a big value. Liz? Sure. So you're right. Um, and on the value piece, I will say this um, for New Jersey. I think it's really important to think about the price and, and the value because that is how you're going to get the local jobs. It's going to cost more. Uh, just it is to, to build an industry here in, in New Jersey and deliver the project. It, it, it's going to cost more because we have to get the supply chain up and ready and experienced and there's a learning curve. And every time you do something the first time, it, it costs more money. And then as you get more experience, you can obviously get the efficiencies and you can get the costs come down. Um, I do think that is why the Nautilus project is important to the state. I think it gives the supply chain an opportunity to learn how to work together, learn where the gaps are. Uh, and it also gives New Jersey an opportunity with the regulators to see how they work together, how the processes work. And then as we move into a larger scale, and, and Thomas is correct, scale is so important. Um, and it, that we will, the supply chain, the regulators, all the people working within New Jersey will have this figured out so that we can deliver these large scale projects. I get asked all the time um, by people, states, how do, we, how do we attract the supply chain? How do we get them to settle into our state? I say you have to give them scale, you have to give them transparency, and you have to give them a, a timeline, drawdown uh, commitment, essentially, exactly what Governor Murphy has done here. You've done everything right to attract the industry in the state. Talking about this supply chain, Liz uh, and others, um, <coughs> It's been said that uh, it's going to uh, New Jersey or other states aren't likely to see um, w uh, turbine manufacturers and other large manufacturers of offshore wind come here immediately. How long is it going to take to get that uh, supply chain in place and where it's really creating the type of jobs that you uh, suggested in your slides? So we already have a supply chain in New Jersey. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a siting and permitting uh, environmental, uh, in, the site, in the siting and permitting phase of the, of the projects, there's a lot of environmental uh, firms and vessel owners that are working in, in the state of New Jersey uh, already. Uh, I think what we're gonna see next is some of the steel uh, uh, foundations being fabricated here in the state or in secondary steel being worked on. So you're going to see those large steel components, the transitions, and, and Thomas and Doug, please jump in, and, and possibly the substations uh, manufactured here uh, locally. So you'll see those pieces. Everybody wants the shiny turbine manufacturer. Everybody wants that in their state. Um, but that isn't going to come right away. That We do need to have between six and eight uh, gigawatts of offshore wind in the pipeline with a consistent one gigawatt drawdown every year. After that, to get the Siemens, the Gamesas, the GEs, the MHI Vestas to make that investment in some state with, with a turbine uh, facility. 
what you probably will see before a nacelle uh, facility is you'll see towers and you'll see blades. And th those are huge jobs. I mean, I, I, everyone wants, again, the nacelle fa factory. Go for the blades. That's 24 seven, uh, three shifts every day. I mean, hundreds of workers building out these blades. And those will be eventually built here probably sooner than nacelles. I don't know, Thomas, do you wanna, Doug? So I guess the, the thing that most of the governors on the East Coast have given up is the, like, blade, is the ribbon cutting in front of the factory, right? They, for, for turbines, because to, to Liz Swain, that, that is a, that's a big, big effort. But I think that what we have the opportunity for is, is yeah, all the electrical component assembly. You know, uh, GE's not necessarily going to move a factory here. But it's a heck of a lot easier to put things together here. And I think that uh, the other thing you're going to get are, are some of the things that, like transmission, like cable, aren't really very sexy, but they're huge in, as far as their importance in the project. And that might be um, really the use of these ports for kind of staging for both projects in New Jersey and other places. And then the thing that that everybody kind of forgets, and, and, and I, I always kind of have to remember that, that I'm sort of biased because our company's been doing operations and maintenance for 30 years, is we have thousands of opportunities for O&M jobs as this industry grows. I mean, our project alone is gonna have 15 jobs for three turbines. And so you imagine what it's gonna be like for 800 or 1100 or 3500 megawatts. And those are not just people who are totally not afraid of heights and work on the towers, right? <laughs> this, is, this is people who are captains of vessels who can get, get the teams out there and back safely. These are helicopter pilots. Um, these are helicopter mechanics. These are folks who are doing the asset management, who love offshore wind but are totally afraid of heights. And so they sit there and they look at computers and they make sure that everything's running properly. And so we have all these, these really, you know, kind of cool photo ops of construction jobs that are out there. Um, but there's a whole lot of decades after this of continual careers that are gonna be made in O&M. And you can't forget all that. And especially when you're thinking about if, if our project's first one off Atlantic City and Thomas comes next, well, all of a sudden Atlantic City becomes an O&M hub, not for New Jersey, but for the whole East Coast. And that's something that we really don't want to lose sight of and I feel like is, is so important as we think about jobs in the industry. Okay. Yeah, Clark. So I'm, I think, I think these, these perspectives are, are by and large correct. There's one thing that I would, would like all of us to think about is to think about who's not in this room. Who's not on the panel in front of you here today? And who's not on the panel um, is a lot of the other wind developers around the world who are looking at New Jersey and trying to figure out whether this is a place to do business. And I am reminded, oddly enough, of Texas uh, when, when I think about the situation here in New Jersey. Texas under George Bush, when he was governor, uh, had basically no megawatts of, of onshore wind. And Governor Bush is the single governor in U.S. history who has done more for renewables than any other governor, bar none. And what he did is he created, you know what's coming, he created a transmission system for onshore wind. And that transmission system sent a signal to the industry it resulted in a couple of things. It resulted in a lot of competition and 20,000 megawatts of onshore wind constructed in under two decades. But for this point, it also, the sending that signal about building a market resulted in Vestas bringing a manufacturing facility 
to Oklahoma, <coughs> not Texas, because even Governor Bush couldn't control the prices and the siting decisions of private industry. But that, that factory was a result of sending a signal, not to the folks here, but to the folks who are thinking of coming here. And that's what I would ask the, the Board of Public Utilities and the Murphy administration to think about, is as they think about this first procurement, which is pivotal, and we're not involved, so uh, I wish everybody luck, send a good signal to the rest of the industry. Think about growing the industry the next decade and the next two decades. Okay, uh, Josh, when you were uh, in your uh, discussion, you mentioned uh, the wind resources in New Jersey and the fluctuation in ocean temperatures. Um, how much uh, risk is the uh, likelihood, as most scientists say, that these type of hurricanes and extreme storm events are likely to become more frequent and more intense with climate change, which is already occurring, according to the climate report. And how much of a risk is that to the infrastructure of the offshore wind industry? And uh, I, I'm not sure Europe gets uh, hit with a lot of hurricanes like uh, the eastern seaboard of the United States does. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. We're seeing, and many of <coughs> you have experienced it, that, that as the oceans and the atmospheres warm, they just become more energetic. And so there's just more fuel available for these storms. We're also seeing coastal impacts are going to change because while some people here are sea level rising millimeters or a couple inches doesn't sound like a big deal, when you start thinking about the impact <coughs> storms may have on infrastructure along the coast and potentially offshore, it becomes very important. Uh, the, the likelihood of winds, so, so one way that, that I think about it, and I don't have much experience working in Europe uh, on the wind side, we do have quite a few partnerships on the ocean side, um, is that the winds experienced in, in Europe where a lot of these farms are, are strong. They're 50 knots, sometimes more in the North Sea. More steady, you see less of the 100 knot or more wind events in, in those locations. So, one thing that does need to be considered with the development of, of turbines off our coast is how you handle those less frequent, although predicted to be more frequent, high energy events uh, like an, a Sandy or like a, a Michael that just impacted the Gulf Coast. Uh, so it's something to consider. Uh, my understanding, and I, I, I'm not a designer of these turbines, is that presently they're designed to withstand about a Cat 3 storm, something like that. And so I'm not sure what the industry is doing to consider perhaps uh, elevating that, that level of, of uh, wind that you'd expect to experience, maybe not every year, but certainly uh, more frequently than, than has been in the past. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? I can weigh in on what the industry is doing. Um, there's a U.S. national standard setting process going on right now um, where the National Renewable Energy Laboratory is, is uh, running it uh, with the Department of Energy, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, um, and, and has convened industry to uh, develop guidelines uh, for foundations, uh, for the towers, for the turbines. So this is something that they are looking at. I will also say, and I would love the developers to weigh in on this, but they, they do an awful lot of work um, in the 
pre-development phase to understand what, what the site conditions are out there, the soil conditions, um, and, and gather a lot of information. And they also over-engineer the foundations. Um, they have their suppliers over-engineer them. Uh, that's why they're so big and heavy and expensive. Um, and, and so the other piece of that is, and I, th I think this is always interesting piece about the industry, that no, even though the foundations look alike, they're actually customized for the site that they're going on. Um, so, I th and that's really important to understand that they're going to withstand storms. Um, we, we know that. It's an oil and gas technology derived from the, um, from the platforms that are out there uh, in the Gulf Coast. And, and those platforms obviously withstand really extreme hurricanes and extreme weather. But with that, I'll turn it over to Thomas and, and Doug to talk about what they do, because they do a lot to really prepare for this. We prepare for it. I'm not really sure. I'm not a, a structural engineer, so I, I can't speak to it. But other than to say that the guys who and women who stamp the drawings and stand behind them say that we're going to make it through. And that's, that's really, it's a heck of a lot more credibility than me telling you we will. So. <laughs> Also, just adding that, I mean, don't underestimate the Irish Sea and the North Sea. It's pretty rough weather there as well, and they have been spinning there for, for many, many years. Um, but I'm not a structural engineer either, but everything we're hearing is that this is not of a concern, and, and, and Liz is absolutely right. You design your foundations uh, very differently, more steel, less steel, different structures to absolutely be fit for the market you operate in. So. The, the storms, obviously, if you hit a sandy comes in, won't there be any impact? I don't think you cannot <laughs> guarantee that, but you can certainly guarantee that they are made for uh, you know, lasting uh, through the lifetime. Okay. Uh, I'd like to ask the panelists, what are the primary challenges to completing the first operational wind farm? Are they political, technical, or are they financial? I mean, that's certainly the first two things uh, are very important. Uh, I think that the financing side, when you look at the companies involved, uh, that's less of, a, of an issue, uh, but they're definitely tied to the two other things. So I think what we're seeing now is political commitment. Uh, that's very important. But you also have, related to that, a permitting process you have to go through, where you have to go through both state and, and federal permits. Um, it, it, it's been done, but that's definitely something that is, um, you know, on our uh, risk register, if you will. Um, I would say that changing the political landscape for a new market is obviously dangerous to, to a new industry. But I think when you look across the board right now, you have massive support. So uh, it's hard not to be uh, optimistic. And then I would say um, when it comes to the financing of it, um, we have as a company done this many, many times, so that's not an issue. I'm pretty sure that we look to EDF and, and Barrick, also big companies, that is not the concern really. Yeah, I think political is the reason that the industry has sort of taken as long as it has to get going. Um, you look at how long Bohm has been, the federal agency that's in charge of it, has, has been running lease auctions versus how many times there's been an offshore wind solicitation. Uh, and there's a lot of, lot of leases that are sitting out there that that didn't go for very much money. Uh, and then the moment you get a whiff of a market, you can see what happened in New York where Statoil played a tremendous amount um, for that auction. And in, I guess, four or five weeks, there'll be a Massachusetts auction. 
And uh, you know, Thomas is going to be able to look across the pond and say, yeah, we didn't pay what those guys paid because those three, those three leases that are there are now part of a very active market and they're going to be highly competitive and they're going to be a heck of a lot more value. And so the politics has driven interest because folks can see, okay, there's truly an offtake market. And then I think that there's the technical side of we don't have a lot of the vessels that are needed here in the U.S. We have to get some from Europe. We have to kind of duct tape and bubble gum some together from here in the U.S. And, and think about some production coming up from the Gulf. But I think that if you can get past the politics and you can get past the sort of the initial growth of the industry on the technical side, then it will just come down to making sure projects are cited properly. And that will be, uh, I think, even more of a concern as the industry goes forward. And we're trying to make sure we can coexist properly with the fishing industry and other marine uses. Um, but for these, these initial ones, especially here in New Jersey, it's really nice to have the policy kind of taken care of. And it, it doesn't mean that it's kind of a slam dunk on anything, but it just means that you're not in an environment where you're really wondering if, if there's a commitment to offshore wind. And that's, that's so important. <coughs> Does any of the panelists see problems with uh, the test that New Jersey is going to put developers to that it must demonstrate a net economic benefit to ratepayers in the state of New Jersey? Is that a big hurdle or easily surmounted? I don't know whether it's easy, but I don't think it's a, it's a big hurdle. I think we are pretty confident that we can show net economic benefits. Otherwise, we wouldn't be investing this kind of money that we are doing right now. So I think that test will be passed. I'm, I'm pretty confident with that. I agree. I mean, we're, we're well past the net benefits test on even a, a small project. And, and we feel like that is the first and most essential part, portion of it, is that the state has to have some sort of benefit from it. Um, but then the rest of it is just bringing the rest of the project forward. In terms of uh, investment, and uh, Doug mentioned how the costs that have been mentioned are uh, probably understated. Um, what is, can anyone really give me a projection of what these projects are going to cost in terms of billions of dollars in investment and what the likely outcome is going to be for um, ratepayers? I mean, uh, <laughs> Doug, I'm looking at you because you, you got a project before the board now, and I re read through um, some of the briefs on it, and most of the information about finances and impact to ratepayers are redacted, and so we don't have a clue to what uh, it's going to cost. When are, when are developers going to start telling the public, hey, this is something we have to do, but this is what it, the cost is. I think the, the price that becomes public on a project occurs much later in the process after a project's gone through the full review process. Uh, you can see that in Massachusetts. I, I think that the, the winner was announced, but the price wasn't announced for three or four months after that. So that, I think, was it Thomas, like nine months between submittal and final? And so, um, I think that as things go forward, you'll probably see something analogous to onshore wind, where there just becomes some kind of industry standards for what it costs to build uh, in specific regions or specific wind regimes. And so uh, there's not going to be you know, kind of big differences. But I think that, that when we're talking publicly about prices and costs, I mean, we have to be really careful that we're not doing something that uh, would ever be viewed as collusion or something like that if you've got developers looking at, at similar areas. 
Um, and more to the point with the BPU process, for us, is it's a, it's a road. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, you know, we put in an offer, the ratepayer advocate has her job, which is to say no and then figure out something that is acceptable. And so at the end of the day, something will come out that we think is a, a, a low ratepayer impact and a high value to the state and um, look forward to that day. Thomas, you want to weigh in? Yeah, just just adding that uh, I think if if you look to Massachusetts again, it came in um, very very low and basically on par with what you've seen in in Europe, and that was basically bit, uh, competition between uh, three developers. So I think the point is that if you have the right developers, you'll get the competition right from the get go. Uh, if you ask me, it probably started uh, quite a bit more aggressive than I would have thought, knowing that it's a new industry where you're also trying to build up a supply chain, but it also tells you that there's a big appetite and people want to get started. There's a lot of capital out there right now, a lot of investments uh, that, that needs to be done. And I think uh, New Jersey will benefit from that again, but I would also add that uh, when it comes to the pricing, let's see how it, it, it comes in in the next few auctions here, uh, because you have also, as I think Bruno mentioned, the tax, tax credits that are being phasing out and that obviously impacts also the, the, uh, the price. I do agree that uh, when you look further ahead, uh, you'll see probably more, a little bit more standard. But markets are different, wind regimes are different, uh, grid connections are, are different. Uh, there are many reasons why pricing can, can be different. You cannot compare always uh, completely across markets. Um, <coughs> since Massachusetts has come up, uh, somebody in the audience submitted a question. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, Massachusetts, does it have an open access transmission system? Clark? No, <laughs> it does not. Uh, but the legislature passed a bill before it went out of session for the, uh, the election. Uh, it, moved, it is moving towards an open access transmission system. So the legislature passed, Governor Baker signed a bill permitting transmission to compete on an equal basis with generation in Massachusetts. So the paradigm is, I think, relatively consistent across the states. With the first procurement, I, I think as Doug mentioned, you, you, you don't have to worry about a transmission system. Then when, you're, when you have that, you've met that threshold, that's when you start planning for a kind of infrastructure approach to, to get the industry up and competition flourishing. Anybody else? Yeah, I guess this is becoming a little bit of a transmission conference, but that's uh, okay. Sorry. Um, no, and, and we've discussed this back and forth also, Bruno. I think on paper, it would be fantastic if you could do something smart out there, right, where you could do something between a lot of states. Why don't we connect New Jersey to New York to Massachusetts? Wonderful. May, let's have a big planning. How are you going to do that? And uh, my usual response is, yes, we tried in Europe, right? We wanted to connect Norway with the UK, UK to continental Europe. Great. Now the countries need to work together. Who gets the benefits? Uh, how is we going to do this? Nothing happens. That is our concern, that if you want to get this started, uh, states have to take the leadership uh, themselves. And what are you planning for, right? It's back to the point, yes, if New Jersey come out saying three and a half gigawatts Day one, New York, 2.4 day one, Massachusetts, 1,600 megawatt day one. We have out there eight, eight gigawatt. Let's go out, do something smart, get involved. That, that's not the case, right? You come in more phases, 
which also, by the way, allows you to deploy the best technology because in one or two years, I'm sure also the transmission side, certainly on the turbine side, will become bigger. You also get the benefits of that. So I think that's a little bit the, the issue we're dealing with. It sounds very nice, but how are you actually going to do it? In addition to just also introducing those, what we call project on project risk, right? We know exactly how we want to design our wind farm. If we have to deal with somebody else, we look at the transmission sites. How are they coming uh, together? So those are the issues. Uh, I will uh, say that we are very happy to, to, to work with other <laughs> to transmission companies to find out solutions. We are just a little bit burned by the experience in Europe and are very, very uh, skeptical, uh, as you can probably hear. But uh, I can understand why people think it's uh, appealing. I just don't see how it, it really uh, works out. Some, somebody mentioned uh, the scarcity of uh, substations uh, to connect. Uh, what about uh, Oyster Creek uh, and other facilities? Uh, I think some people have mentioned Earl as being a possibility. Is, uh, uh, is, it a, is there an opportunity to use existing uh, facilities uh, where substations are already located to uh, bring the load to more populated areas? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what um, I think Orsted's interconnection positions are in Massachusetts, right, or into a decommissioned coal plant. Um, and, uh, and Oyster Creek has uh, 1,100 megawatts of offshore wind in the PJMQ. Somebody's connected into it. Um, we won't know for another six months who it actually is. But uh, yeah, I mean, those are, those are great places to, to think about bringing in the transmission. Because uh, as Clark said, it, that it's like anything else, you know, when you talk about like the transmission or transportation system, they always talk about like the last mile. Well, that's how it's going to be for offshore wind too, right? Like we can, we can get to 1500 feet off the beach. No problem. I mean, there's a lot of work, but <laughs> it's, it's how you get to the substation that then becomes an issue. And so um, any power plant that's near the coast is a, a, a it's a, a much clearer kind of path, um, but that doesn't mean it's clear. It's just clearer. Liz. You mentioned uh, states need to, uh, should collaborate with each other rather than compete with each other. Uh, is that happening? I mean, there seemed to have been a lot of sniping between New York and New Jersey over some of the offshore wind projects uh, proposed there. Is it happening or is it likely to happen? I mean... Yeah. I do believe it is starting to happen. Um, we obviously talked to them a lot about the opportunities to collaborate. Um, I think they understand that if they don't, they could potentially kill the industry before it gets started. Um, so that is that is um, a message that is getting through to them. I mean, however, they are, they are going they all want to be first in the water, and they all want as many jobs as they can get. I mean, that's just the nature of of the states. But they are working through it. I think with or instead acquiring deep water, you now have projects in six states. And so I think this is incredibly helpful for state regional cooperation because the, develop, the developer who's sitting to my right here is going to have projects across six states. He's gonna have a regional uh, supply chain and the industry will work together and I think the states will follow along after it. So I, I think it will all work. And, and I think that, that uh, Liz is right. This, this cooperation will not uh, be sort of 
with this gigantic vision of some kind of, of uh, European supergrid, and, and that's not what we're advocating. I think the, the, the kind of incremental cooperation that the states have, have already started to engage in is what's necessary, and uh, I think it, it allows uh, Orsted and other companies to, to begin to avail themselves not simply of a state and its infrastructure, but a regional infrastructure. And a regional infrastructure actually turns out to be extremely important for the development of offshore wind because power can flow freely across a variety of uh, access points to shore. That's not gonna happen now. If you build to that incrementally, not have some grand design, but a little bit of one step at a time, pace the development of the grid, to use Tomas's phrase. I think that's absolutely critical, and I think that actually facilitates the, the state collaboration. If you can take, if, you, if I may, baby steps, rather than have to buy into some big transformative vision. The baby step works, it's shown to work, and I think it, it actually positions the states to help jointly the industry grow. Uh, does, do any of you see any uh, emerging uh, and ongoing disputes and conflicts with uh, the shipping sector over the construction of 3,500 megawatts of offshore wind in New Jersey and uh, a lot uh, similar size off the New York, uh, Long Island in terms of shipping and commercial traffic? Is that an issue? I mean, it's, it's certainly a very important stakeholder, but I would say that the Federal uh, Department of Interior or BOEM have done a very good job in pre-qualifying all the lease areas, right? They've spent years of going out every, having these discussions to figure out what is the most optimal and de-conflicted areas where you can build offshore wind farms, taking into consideration shipping, uh, the fishing industries and uh, a lot of other stakeholders. So I'm not too concerned uh, um, about shipping either. Obviously, as you start to build it out, uh, it's going to be even more important that you have a very good and early dialogue with, with the shipping companies. Um, it is as it is with all key stakeholders. It's being pretty open about what your plans are. Go out early, have the conversation, saying this is what we are thinking. What do you think? Give us the feedback, and then we can take that in early on when we haven't you know, spent too much money also in, in designing and developing our wind farm. And I can only say that uh, we've built 24 wind farms and we've always managed to find a solution with, uh, with, with shipping um, companies. So we are hopeful that that will also happen uh, on this side of the pond. Yeah, and we don't have a, a large lease in New Jersey, so I can't speak to that completely. But I, I think that the next question is, what other uses of the ocean might you see conflict with going forward? And I think that's where it's going to be so important to have offshore wind trying to work as cooperatively as possible with the fishing industry. Uh, and there's, there's going to be areas where are, they're, they're great for wind because they're you know, shallow or proximity to shore and they don't have other environmental concerns, um, but maybe they're choice fishing grounds. And so maybe those don't stay on the table. Um, and so that's, I think, where there's going to be the future sort of growing pains of, of how do we share this marine resource with an industry that's, that's already out there. That, that provides a lot of jobs, it provides a tremendous amount of food for the world, not just the East Coast. And, and we need to make sure that, that those interests all get balanced in a way that 
um, allows offshore wind to go forward so we can keep producing clean energy and, and really meet those, those goals that we need to have as a, as a nation and a world, um, but at the same time not simultaneously harm another group that's trying to do this, something else that's in the public good. Josh. Yeah, just to reiterate the comments, I think it's really encouraging to hear that. We've, we've been engaging with a lot of different stakeholders over the years that we've been in existence and who are working in the ocean, and I think the comments that Thomas and Doug have made are really important, that the conversations happen early, uh, that they happen with a common uh, language, and, and the nice thing about this region is there's a lot of data that's available to have these discussions and to make sure that they're not just checking a box, oh, we met with this group, check, but we're actually listening to those groups and we're incorporating their thoughts into the planning process. And I think we've seen evidence of that already and I think that just needs to be encouraged and continued and, and really been done in a meaningful way with data to back those conversations and we have that in this region. It, it's a very well instrumented area. Is that data driving where uh, developers like Orsted uh, decide where to put their uh, uh, wind farms in their uh, designated lease areas, Thomas? That, that's certainly part of the equation. I think Doug also uh, alluded to it. You take a look at where is the, the best wind, where is the closest uh, to shore, where the, the value of you know, what, where the fishing industry is going. You look at all the stakeholders you have there and then you try to optimize, okay, where can we get the most production, the lowest cost, where we don't sort of have too many conflicts with the key other uh, stakeholders or industries. And uh, as I started out by saying, I actually do think that the federal are doing a very, very thorough jobs over uh, multiple years in going out having these uh, conversations to have the lease areas deconflicted from an early point. And uh, I can only add that you want to be a very good developer where you spend the, the, the amount of time not rushing through anything. So um, for us, we absolutely take that into the consideration. At the end of the day, it's going to be uh, a magic formula that takes all these interests into, into one, and that's not, not always easy. Well, one other thing that I'd bring up too is there's a great opportunity, it may seem like a small thing, but, but the ocean's a very difficult thing to measure. Uh, many of you working in this environment know how difficult it is. And having structure offshore provides a platform that could benefit some of these other stakeholders with other instrument measurements that aren't necessarily proprietary or necessary for the success of the developer and the project that they have there, but could provide benefit to other stakeholders. For example, Bottom temperature is a measurement that's very important to commercial fishing, and it's not an easy measurement to get. Uh, and so there are opportunities for partnership and collaboration in these discussions to get even more information about the ocean that would not be possible if structure was not offshore to do it. And there's examples of that in oil and gas and other industries offshore. I think this is a really good point, too, to mention um, New Jersey's offshore wind strategic, strategic planning process uh, that the BPU is starting to undertake. Um, well, there will be stakeholder meetings in December. Uh, those dates will be out fairly soon. It's a process where they want to engage all of the stakeholders and looking uh, at what the future of offshore wind looks like in the state. So it's a, it's a time for people to provide their input um, along with industry and, and to develop the plan for, for moving forward. So if you're interested in it and you want to be part of the conversation, I highly suggest you attend those meetings and you get involved in that process. It's an open process, uh, Rutgers, and we're involved in it. So please, please do so. Uh, looking forward, uh, several panelists mentioned the uh, 
tax credit that is going to expire at the end of uh, 2019. Um, what's the prospects of uh, that being renewed uh, given the current temperature in Washington? And what kind of impact will it have if it's not renewed on the sector? Yeah, you're waiting for me to go first. I'm letting you take that one. <laughs> Yeah, uh, done deal. Uh, no, I I don't know. Uh, I think uh, the tax uh, credits and, and Doc would know this better was really designed for the land-based wind, um, and I think there's been an understanding of that once the last sort of extension of the tax credits was was made a few years ago, that that would be the last time. Now, offshore wind is starting to emerge. It's a new industry uh, where we think it would be fair that there will be an extension, uh, especially when you're starting to, to build an industry from the ground. Is that going to happen? I don't know, but uh, I can only add that um, we have been very positively surprised, actually, that uh, we've got a lot of support from, from the federal in terms of streamlining the, the permitting process. You've seen also um, U.S. federal coming out with new new lease areas for offshore wind, so uh, why not give it a shot? I mean, we are certainly advocating for it. Yeah, we would agree, and I think that if, if there becomes a point, though, where we have to sort of choose our battles, we would rather that the federal government keep pushing future offshore wind leases and kind of keep that program moving. Um, I, I don't know how much tax policy is going to get worked out over the next couple of years, and it, yeah. it would seem better that if... If we've, you know, if Thomas and I have lobbyists in Washington, we want them to fight battles that win, <laughs> not battles that just eat up a whole lot of time on the clock. And I think taxes, uh, who knows, you know, come mid-January, maybe that is something where there's a lot of uh, sort of back and forth and the actual kind of sort of political sausage making there's supposed to be. Um, but if not, we're really just focused on, on encouraging the continual program of the, the leases out there. I do think there is one area of possibility for something to come out of the federal government on legislation for the offshore wind industry, and Clark, you'll be happy to hear this, but I think it is an infrastructure bill. And so um, where we can look at ports and grid upgrades, I, I think that that's an area that the offshore wind industry should really start looking at um, and advocate for uh, to be included in, in that piece of legislation as, as we begin. So where we can maybe lose the investment tax credit, we can possibly make up some ground on investments in infrastructure and having some, some things paid for through that process. Um, I will also say too, if, if I do my job right, my organization does its job right, builds out the local U.S. supply chain, uh, we will be able to keep, get cost savings through having a local industry here. Um, and that does help the developers and and, and help bring down the cost. Along those lines, um, the Senate president in New Jersey has been very vocal in advocating uh, that the Paulsboro port um, become an important component of the offshore uh, wind sector. Are there, is, that a, is that a likelihood? And what other areas in New Jersey could uh, tend to grow if uh, the offshore sector takes off as plan uh, proposed? So our, our intent is to use Paulsboro, and part of the reason that we feel like it's a, a good opportunity is just the amount of work that's been done to truly bring Paulsboro to a place where they're, they're, you know, they're growing, they're seeking to kind of use it for offshore wind. Um, and the one thing that's, that's been, I think, 
sort of helpful to us is that um, Senate President Sweeney and, and other folks who have really pushed it, uh, Assembly, uh, Assembly members of Chelly, they understand the limitations of Paulsboro, which I don't think that folks did seven or eight years ago. And those limitations are basically based upon the two bridges and the transmission line that cross the Delaware. So there's a height limit going into Paulsboro. Um, and so it's figuring out how best to optimize that port. And, and so that's where we think, well, for, for three foundations for the Nautilus project, it's a great spot. Uh, and it might be a, a really good staging area for, for you know, 30 or 40 foundations for an, a future project. Or it might be a place where they, they assemble foundations and then they, they bring them out from there. And I think that's kind of to be determined. Um, but the, the one thing that, that no state on the East Coast really has is the perfect port. You know, 500 acres or 300 acres of just open land with no air limits, you know, air height limits. And so I think that Paulsboro is a great first step. And I think that New Jersey has an opportunity to kind of build out some of the other ports and perhaps even have some new ports that, that could be a port, you know, part of the offshore wind industry. Um, but no, we're very excited to be able to use it. All right. Uh, question from the audience. Uh, what's the role that PGM plays in this? Are they a hindrance? Are they a facilitator? Uh, what do they need to do to make sure this happens? Go right ahead, Claire. All right, so for all you non-energy geeks in the room. It's not many. <laughs> Fair enough. PJM stands for Pennsylvania, uh, it stands for the PJM Interconnection, which is the, the uh, independent system operator which governs the wholesale electricity markets here in New Jersey and in 12 other states in the Mid-Atlantic, as far west as Illinois, as far south as parts of North Carolina. PJM operates the wholesale market and oversees the reliability of the grid. PJM's role here is extraordinarily important in the short and in the long term. In the short term, it will oversee the interconnection requests that every developer transmission or wind developer uh, will submit in order to connect to a particular point and assess the costs of that interconnection to make sure there's no impact on reliability and, and a variety of other more, more uh, technical topics. PJM's role is, is a particularly difficult one, if I may, because the tariff, they operate under a set of rules that's a couple thousand pages thick. Uh, the tariff was never designed for the kind of growth that, that New Jersey and, and the other states are proposing. So in order to get a lot of power onto the system and plan for those upgrades, the tariff has to be pulled and stretched and shaped in a different way than, than its founders, than its drafters uh, anticipated. So PJM can do two things. to. to sum it up. One is to take and evaluate the interconnection requests, but second and much more importantly is to plan not on an incremental way, but to plan for the, the wholesale growth of this sector. And PJM is now starting, starting to, to address that. But it's a little bit, frankly, beyond their, their uh, customary duties. They are an incremental planner. They are not a a wholesale planner. And it's an interesting place for PJM to be. I think they're beginning to grasp the, the challenge and move ahead. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, uh, 
asked uh, participants to submit questions online too. And here's one uh, that uh, I thought was interesting. The, we are the only commercial, commercial boat builder located in the state of New Jersey. And we helped to build the first crew transfer vessels for the upcoming projects. We would like to know what European design has met all of your needs and requirements. But more importantly, is there a big role? Uh, is that a big lucrative market for uh, the domestics to uh, jump into shipbuilding to service these uh, wind farms? Yeah, not I hope not too lucrative. That would mean too many, too high cost for us. But I do think that's <laughs> a, it's an area that uh, has a lot of uh, potential, and it's one of the areas we're looking at right now. Next to ports, it's it's looking at vessels, crew transfer vessels can be built locally. But also, when you look at the large installation vessels, that is uh, one of the missing pieces for building a long-term offshore wind industry here. So yeah, I mean, uh, we're in a competitive uh, process right now, so I cannot go into too much details, but it's certainly one of the areas that we are looking at right now, and it's one of the areas where I think you can also go uh, local right from the start. Initially, though, most of those turbines going to be transported from Europe to the East Coast? Yeah, no no question. So uh, you, you have the manufacturing take, taking place in uh, Europe, but uh, there will be assembly and parts of it can be done in, in the US, but you won't have a fully fledged uh, manufacturing facility set up for the first wave. Uh, I think Liz talked about some numbers. What does it really require to have one of the big three set up really sharp here? It probably requires one to two gigawatt of annual capacity being procured and a good solid pipeline. I think you have the latter working on, on the first. And then I can just look to the land-based wind industry that really has emerged over the last uh, few decades where in the beginning you didn't have all the facilities either, but now you have all the manufacturing taking place here. And I think US is probably the biggest market for land-based wind. And we can only hope it goes uh, the same way for, for offshore wind. Um. Um, okay. Uh, can... Uh Offshore wind eventually, there's a big debate about nuclear power in New Jersey. We're going to, uh, it looks like New Jersey ratepayers are going to be subsidizing uh, power, uh, uh, nuclear power for the next few years. Can offshore wind replace nuclear power and how quickly? So, I mean, wind is intermittent, right? No, no right. secret. There are days where it doesn't blow. Um, but when you look at it, it's, uh, it's really a reliable resource. So we talk about capacity factors of 50% uh, and still trending upwards, which is pretty remarkable. And again, I use the example of uh, coming from, from Denmark, where you have 50% of all your electricity being wind. Lights are always on, extremely reliable system. And that's because you have that wind backed up by hydro coming down from essentially Norway and then you have a good strong interconnector down to Europe, uh, sorry Germany. So that you can definitely build out uh, you know, your energy infrastructure with a large proportion of uh, that being renewable. We can go back to discussion what it requires on the grid side as well, it would require uh, a lot. Can it replace nuclear? I absolutely think it can but you need to do that as part of a diversified uh, portfolio. And you can have gas that would be also, I think, a bridge long time into the future as we uh, turn toward a more renewable, uh, I think, future. Is, uh, what, what, what's your 
what's the panelist's perspective on how achievable uh, the governor's 100% goal, clean energy? I mean, natural gas generates more electricity than nuclear today. Uh, is, that, uh, is it a red, readily achievable goal? Absolutely. Um, I think there's no question about it. I think uh, Tomas pointed to the, the transitional issues that, that are starting to loom in Europe. Frankly, they're also starting to be addressed in Europe. Uh, Denmark is doing an outstanding job. Uh, my company briefly thought of opening up an office in Europe six or seven years ago, so we track developments there fairly closely. Uh, Denmark is, is now thinking about supplying, using offshore wind and other renewables to supply its heating and transportation needs. So we're moving out of the generation sector into the other sectors of the economy with, with what Denmark has been able to do. I think that uh, other regions in the US, uh, the Southwest Power Pool has crossed the 50% of uh, generation in one day provided by renewables. Uh, I think California is targeting uh, 2045 rather than 2050. Uh, I am a uh, sort of believer in American know-how. I think that the, the kinds of companies that are coming into the offshore space are uh, world-class companies. I think that the, the 3,500 megawatts can be easily surpassed. And I think with the kind of planning that, that the industry does through PJM and, and other vehicles, the infrastructure build-out that, that Tomas described is absolutely critical. When that occurs, I think uh, renewable, 100% renewables by 2050 is easily within our grasp by 2050, if not sooner. And I think PJM's actually already said, they had a study that came out, they could do 30% renewables without any kind of impact on their system and negative impact on their system. So if, if they could do 30%, I think they're probably at four or 5% right now without any issue. One, we've got some way to go, but two, um, by the time we get to 30%, all those other new kind of portions of the system that need to be kind of buttressed and kind of made stronger, whether it be through energy storage or different types of kind of peaker plants, uh, I think will be there. <coughs> Are planners looking holistically at the big picture? I mean, uh, people mention you have to do a lot of planning. And in New Jersey, at the same time, we're uh, pushing aggressive offshore wind goals and renewable energy goals. There's on a, or a four big natural gas power plants proposed. There's like a dozen or so pending pipe, natural gas pipeline uh, proposed. Uh, should policymakers be looking at what's happening in terms of everything else? So consumers are not ended, end, ending up paying for a lot billions of dollars in stranded costs. Yes, the, the issue is that um, as, as confident as Thomas and I are that the U.S. offshore industry and Liz, that it's going to go forward and that Clark is, wants to be, you know, and, and intends to be a part of it, um, there's no sure thing, you know, and uh, just yesterday, a, a pipeline was, was struck down, and so, you know, every bit of, of energy infrastructure that's going to get built, whether it be an offshore wind farm or a natural gas plant or a pipeline, has people who oppose it and people who support it. And so, 
we don't we don't have a an energy czar for the region or for the country or I think even for the state who can who can start kind of picking winners. Um, I think that's there's there's just going to be kind of we're going to figure it out like we have forever. Um, but I'm I'm sure at the end of the day there's something that will be really good for the ratepayers and something that won't be, and we'll get the value and the price for both. Okay. Well, there, there's some people who think that we. Uh, New Jersey ratepayers spent $3 billion paying for stranded costs that were never stranded when the uh, elect uh, electricity market was uh, uh, deregulated. Anyway, um, uh, we're running out of time here. Um, okay, um, finally, would you guys, uh, each of you please uh, sum up and see, explain what uh, you'd like to see happen, see happen in the next um, six, uh, six months to a year to make this uh, offshore wind more viable. Want to start off, Clark? Well, uh, six months to a year, I think that uh, these guys are going to be doing a little more work than, than I am. Uh, my company is, is, is not eligible to compete in the, the, the first procurement. Oddly, Liz's phrase of uh, joining competition and cooperation, I think, is, is a very useful one for us. You clearly see that, that Orsted and Barrick have their policy differences. But what I think unites us, if I may, is, is the vision that we share of a thriving offshore wind industry here and, and across the Northeast, I think that infrastructure and transmission can be the foundation for that industry. But I don't think anything in the next six months, candidly, is going to change that. The, we think of infrastructure as a medium to long-term operation. It's a public good. Public goods take a long time to develop. They're the highways and the airports of the world. So. I am optimistic, but the, the six-month time frame is, is not something that, that I am focused on now. No, that, that's a hard question. I, I think, honestly, I would hope that the next six months is continuing what has happened the last uh, six months, 12 months, and 24 months, which basically means that there's more and more attention, more and more support to, to uh, offshore wind. I would like to see that uh, there's been a couple of more um, auction taking place. I would like to see us uh, getting involved with some of the projects. I would really like to see uh, us getting close to getting steel in the water. That won't happen probably in the next six months for, for at least the, the, the larger projects. Um, and then I would like to see that the, the Federal is continuing doing what they can to support offshore wind when it comes to uh, streamlining uh, the permitting process, which is a little cumbersome. And I hope that we'll also see more leases uh, being planned uh, coming out. That would be six very good months if that all happened. So from a state perspective, obviously in six months, we'll have the winner of this first 1,100 megawatt solicitation. Uh, that, will be, that will be fantastic, and it will be a huge um, accelerator for the offshore wind industry. I think in, in the following six months, we need to take the lessons that we learned through that process apply them to the next 1,200 solicitation and the following uh, 1,200 solicitation. We also have 
obviously the involvement of the strategic plan um, that is going to be developed in the next six months to really put New Jersey on the course to get to the 3,500 megawatts and beyond. So I think that's a really important uh, time uh, in, in the state's uh, journey on offshore wind. I will say that in the next six months, I really hope local businesses identify themselves, self-identify, um, get involved in the industry, get educated. It, it's you need to learn about the industry. You need to uh, to start meeting people. It's a relationship-based industry. That's how we grow. So I think that's really important because we need to build out the local supply chain um, in order to uh, have more offshore wind and drive down cost. So I agree with all that. But in 12 months, what I want is um, that horrible smell of fresh asphalt. Because what that means is that Tennessee Avenue is being repaved because our line has been installed for the Nautilus project and we're preparing for a 2020 construction for the foundations and the turbines. So that's what I'm hoping for in 12 months along with the rest of this. Me too. <laughs> uh, I think um, from my perspective, it's having these meaningful dialogues in, in the planning process as this is going. I think it's already happening. Liz mentioned the strategic plan that's being developed. Participate, encourage as much participation as possible from the community in that planning process that that conversation also be informed with the, and take advantage of the wealth of information that's available in this region. It's, uh, it's unique in, in some respects for, for the amount of data that's there, the ways that we can pull the data together and, and have those conversations that, that I hope happen over the next, continue to happen over the next six months. Okay, uh, with one out of time, I want to thank our panelists. They did a fabulous job. Okay, uh, John, I'll close up. And I want to thank Tom, too, uh, as our moderator. Uh, a reminder, uh, this discussion will have an event page up on our site uh, probably sometime around the middle of the next week, uh, which will have a podcast of the uh, discussion, which you can circulate to those who were not able to be here. Um, and also uh, some of the slides that we've, we saw from various panelists and, and the uh, BPU president. And last but not least, please do uh, fill out those uh, surveys. They're very helpful to us. And thank you all very much for being here. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight Roundtable production. For more information on upcoming NJ Spotlight programs, visit the website njspotlight.com. Com. We produce this program in the studios of State Broadcast News in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on the web at statebroadcastnews.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubeck, and thank you for joining us, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.